Good morning. We're going to be talking about identity today, and I couldn't think of a better way to start this message than with one of my favorite clips from the TV show The Office, because identity theft is not a joke at all. Unless it's in The Office, then it's hilarious. Who are you? That is the question that we want to look at today. Who are you? What's your identity? What is it that makes you, you? Today we're going to be continuing our series called Everyday Hope, where we are going through the letter of 1 Peter. Now the Apostle Peter was one of the first 12 disciples, and these were the 12 people who most closely followed Jesus during his ministry on earth, and 11 of whom who would uh, start the church really, um, after Jesus' resurrection and return to heaven. And what Peter wanted to do in this passage that we're going to look at today was to remind his readers exactly who they are. And so if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, uh, you'll want to open them to 1 Peter chapter 2. That's where we're going to be camping out today. So 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 4. Where it says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, when's the last time you thought about a cornerstone? Have you ever thought about a cornerstone? I'm weird. I, I think about cornerstones. When I see them, I'm interested in cornerstones. I don't know why. It could be because I, I like to see how old buildings are that are, you know, are still around. Um, or it could also be because a lot of them put their date in Roman numerals, and I want to try and figure out what that is. And then I realize I don't know Roman numerals very well to figure those out, but that's okay. Here's an example of a cornerstone. This is uh, from the student building on IU's campus, the one with the clock uh, near Kirkwood. Nowadays, cornerstones like this are, they're really more symbolic than functional. I mean, this, you can tell, is not like the base stone, but it's, it's one, you know, they put dates on them, and there's a ceremonial aspect to putting a cornerstone in, but there's really not a functional aspect to it. But in the first century, cornerstones were actually very important. Cornerstone would be the first stone that was laid during the construction of a building. It would be placed on the corner of a building, and it would be where the two walls would intersect, of course, and they had to find good stones or shape good stones that would have a 90-degree angle to them, so they could, uh, when they laid out the walls, it would be actually, um, you know, perpendicular or whatever that is. That's a math term. I'm a preacher. <laughs> the only time we do math is in the book of Numbers. When's the last time we preached on the book of Numbers? Right. Anyway, that one. I think it was perpendicular. Parallel perpendicular. There we go. That was important. So the walls would be square. Um, and, and they would also, you know, would build on top of the cornerstone as well. And so that was very valuable because it would ensure that the building would have a solid foundation. 
So Peter begins this passage by talking about stones. He says that as you come to him, as you come to Jesus Christ, you are being built into a spiritual house. He is the living stone. That's how Peter describes Jesus here. And Later in verse 6, he's quoting the Old Testament book of Isaiah, which further describes Jesus as the Messiah, or further describes the Messiah as the cornerstone. One author suggested to think about this as if you had two building projects. You had one building project that was run by men, by people. And then you had another building project that is run by God. And the men who are building this building, they're searching out for the perfect cornerstone, and they come across the cornerstone of Jesus And they look at it and they judge it not worthy to be used as the cornerstone for their building. They end up rejecting it. He doesn't meet their standards for being the cornerstone. And this is exactly how we see Jesus being treated in the uh, early, you know, when, when he was here on earth. People were looking for the Messiah, the promised Savior of the Israelite people. But Jesus, he didn't fit the bill for what they were looking for. They wanted somebody to come in, and they wanted them to rescue them from Roman occupation. They wanted a military leader who would come and overthrow the Romans from Israel, get them out of Israel, free their country, and and then rule over them like the kings of old, like David, like Solomon, only better. But Jesus didn't do that when he was here on earth. In fact, he lived a pretty humble life. I mean, a transitory life. Uh, he, He was around a lot, very humble. I mean, he taught, he did some amazing miracles, but in the end, he was rejected and he was killed. But then there's this other building project, God's building project. And while Jesus, the living stone, was rejected as the cornerstone by people, he was chosen and he was precious by God to be the cornerstone. He's precious to God to be the cornerstone in a new spiritual house. Peter deliberately chooses these words, chosen and precious, because again, it looks back to what this passage in Isaiah, which is twenty-eight sixteen, looks back to what it says in, and what Peter quotes in verse 6. Now, Peter's quote, it's a little bit different. Like if you turn back in your Bibles to Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen, it's going to look a little bit differently because um, what we have translated for us today is based off of the Hebrew scripture directly, what we have, the, um, what is actually written in Hebrew. What Peter would have been quoting from would have been called the Septuagint, and that's a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. So there's a slight difference. The meaning's the same, but it's just a slight difference in word choices. So Jesus, in God's building, is the cornerstone. He's chosen. He's precious to God. And like Jesus, we too are living stones, built on that cornerstone of Christ. Peter says we are being built into a spiritual house, or rather a house that is influenced by the Holy Spirit. Christians are being built into this spiritual house in order to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices. We don't need actual sacrifices, you know, like physical sacrifices anymore, but spiritual sacrifices. We offer those through Jesus acceptable to God. And again, a lot of this imagery that Peter uses here takes us back to the Old Testament and to the tabernacle and the temple, the place where God dwelled among his people. It also looks back to the sacrificial system that's detailed in the books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. 
We're going to take a closer look at what this idea of Christians as a priesthood means in a few minutes. But in this first opening section here to this passage, Peter's looking at how Jesus is the cornerstone of a new spiritual house and that he was rejected. What about those people, though, that rejected Jesus? That people from that first building project? Peter talks about them in the next couple of verses, verse 7 through 8. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Now for the Christian, Jesus, our chief cornerstone, that's absolutely precious to us. He is who we build our lives on. He is who we build not just our lives, but our church on. Not the building, but the people. There's nothing more important to building an ancient building than the cornerstone. That stone that begins supports lines up everything. But there are those who do not and will not believe. These people will not build their lives on the rock, on the cornerstone of Jesus. And so what about them? What happens to them? Well, Peter writes that those who do not believe... They've rejected the stone that has become the cornerstone. The stone causes people to stumble and fall because they disobey the message, which is the gospel, the good news of God's redemption for people through Christ Jesus. And I came across a story from uh, famed pastor Charles Spurgeon. And it's the story of an old sea captain who was sent out one time in a government ship to discover a shoal or rock or some other obstruction that was said to exist in the Mediterranean. Now, as Spurgeon uh, describes this captain, he says he was an old salt who knew little about navigation as a science and cared less for rules, books, theories, and so on, and he always sneered at scientific works. And so he did. He sailed out and sailed near this spot where they were looking for a rock or shoal or something that would obstruct a ship, he sailed near it, but he didn't come across it, never discovered it, and so he, he came back and said, yep, nothing there. But there was a, an officer who was persuaded that while they didn't find anything, he was still persuaded that there was something that seemed true in that report. And so at some point he became a first officer on another ship and, and took it on himself to sail out near that spot, and he actually discovered that there was a rock there that would damage a ship. And so it got marked on the charts. He got a considerable reward for having made this discovery. The old captain, though, not real thrilled about all this, and so he's cursing and swearing at all these newfangled fellows who could find what he could not. He, he just wouldn't believe that it was there. And, but one thing he would do, because they might call him a liar if he didn't go out and prove that it wasn't there, and so he did. He, he took his ship back out. He sailed over where he thought the rock was, where, the, where it was marked on the maps, just to prove it was nonsense. And he, he had an opportunity uh, to do this. And as he's going over where he thought it was, nothing happened. And so he's really excited. And he's crying out to those who are standing around, many expressions of blasphemy. And he approved these whippersnappers, 
to be fools and liars. And just as he uttered his boast, Spurgeon says, there came a crash. The ship was on the rock, and in a few minutes she was sinking. By the good providence of God, all on board escaped except the captain. He was in such a desperate state of mind that when he was last seen, he was on deck in his shirt sleeves, running about as if he'd gone mad. Spurgeon ends this saying, you see, his firm belief that there was no rock there did not alter his case, did not alter the case. He was wrecked for his obstinacy. And that's what Peter says will be the fate of those who don't believe in the rock of our salvation. Because they can see the stone, but they reject it. They ignore it. They believe it's not there. But just because it's not there, or just because they believe it's not there, doesn't mean it's not there. And it will cause them to stumble and fall, according to Peter. That's what Peter presents. If you've rejected Christ, there's really no hope. For you will stumble and fall. Now, that's not the most fun thing to preach. But there is truly only one way to God. And that is through Jesus. We also still, though, need to remember why Peter is writing this letter in the first place. And that's to give comfort and to encourage people who are going through trials and persecution. And this passage helps to let them know that God is still in control. And yeah, they may be going through rough times and they may be going through trials. And yet, God knows. God knows about it. He knows about you. And he also knows about those who are disobeying the message, who reject the message. Those who overlook the stone, because he sees them too. Peter says they will stumble because they disobey, and he says that they're destined, that's what they're destined for, is to stumble and fall, should they continually disobey. Because that's what the word is, it's a present tense, you know, continual thing. God doesn't want people to disobey him, but as they do, they will be destined to stumble and fall. Now, they can repent. I firmly believe that. Like this, They may be destined if they continually disobey, but if they go to God, he's going to be there waiting. Otherwise, a lot of things Peter writes would not be true. And so that's the non-believers. But what about the believers? Well, verse 9 and 10 say this, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Four ways that Peter describes believers here in this passage. First one is that they are a chosen people. As with much of Peter's letter, he he echoes back to the Old Testament where the Israelites are constantly, consistently looked at as God's chosen people. He chose Abraham and his family to make a nation that would be his, but he would also bless, and through this family, they would bless all nations. And Christians are also chosen by God, a chosen people, the people of the living stone, who, as Peter wrote in verse 4, was chosen by God and precious to him. For his readers, this is, again, an encouragement that whatever they may be going through, God has chosen them 
and they are a part of his people no matter what. The second thing is a royal priesthood. And again, we look back earlier in this passage in verse 5 where Peter writes that his readers, like living stones, are being built into a holy priesthood. He, he also alludes back to the Old Testament book of Exodus where it's written in Exodus 19.6, You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So what exactly does this mean that we are a royal priesthood? Does this mean that we're all like, you know, Rick and I, you know, we're all pastors? Well, no, not really, so be okay with that. The priests of the Old Testament, they, what made them special is that they were set apart for something. They were sanctified, set apart from the people in order to offer sacrifices and, and interact with God in the most holy place. And the same is true for the nation of Israel. They were to be set apart from all the other nations that were surrounding them. They weren't to be like the other nations around them. And the same is true for Christians today. As one commentator writes, we're set apart from the peoples of the world. Not that we lord it over them. Not that we say that we're better than them. But this world is not our home. And we've been set apart for God's kingdom, which is far better. We all have access to the Father through Christ, who is our high priest. And we must continually go before him on behalf of others, as the priests would. We would intercede. We would stand in the gap through our prayers and intercessions like the priests of the ancient times would do. So we are to be a, uh, we are a royal priesthood. We are also a holy nation. We are set apart as Christians, and we should, you know, that really should be evident to people. Remember, as we looked at last week, Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. As we serve God, we want to show people a different, better way than what the world has to offer. But that means we need to look different than what the world looks like. It's, do we look different than the world? Do you? Do I? We can't be like the rest of the world and expect to show people a better way. So how does your life look right now? Does it look like the world or does it look like the kingdom of God? I mean, what's the old saying? If it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. If you look like the world, talk like the world, walk like the world, well, we don't have to live like that because we have been set apart by God as a holy nation. And we're going to be talking more about that next week about how important that is. Now the final thing that Peter looks at, this fourth thing, is that Peter calls his readers God's special possession. And you are, because you are his. You are wanted. You are loved. You are called special. Now we say this a lot, at least I know I say this when I'm up here a lot, but and it may get said so many times that you know, we start to tune it out, but, but listen to me. God, who is the creator of everything, 
the most powerful, infinite being, loves you so, so much. And his love for you never stops. Even during the hurt, even during the hard times, he does not leave you. He will not abandon you. He loves you. And you can know that he loves you because he's shown it by sending Jesus to take on the penalty for our sin, which is death. And you were bought at a price. You are his, purchased by the blood of the lamb in Jesus. And so, yeah, you are God's special possession. As I finish up this morning, I want to tell you a story by Henry Blackaby about a little boy who was scared about his first day at a new school. Family had just moved to the city a few weeks before the start of school, and although this boy had made a few friends in his neighborhood, none of them were in his same class, so he didn't really have any new friends in his class. And his father came to him and he says, Son, I I want you to remember all day that your name is Danny and you are a Harrison. Now say it aloud. Say, my name is Danny and I am a Harrison. And you can probably see the little boy, or at least I can, you know, my name is Danny and I am a Harrison. Crazy father. I mean, he said it with no conviction, no courage, definitely not much volume. And his dad is like, no. Say it like you really know what it means. And I'll tell you what it means. You were named for the great prophet Daniel who survived a lion's den and was bold before great kings in ancient times. Not only that, you are the beloved child of Dottie and Jim Harrison, the grandson of Roger and Martha Harrison, and the great-grandson of Emile and Catherine Harrison. You come from a family that is known for doing good things in this world, a Christian family who are saved and are headed for an eternal home in heaven. Your great-grandparents helped establish two churches in their lifetime, and they built a great company. Your grandparents expanded that company and founded two schools overseas that teach the Bible to new converts. Your grandparents and great-grandparents on your mother's side of the family are also hard-working, law-abiding Christian men and women. Your parents are carrying on the the traditions of both families. We are here opening a new factory in this city for our family company. And we are involved in a church that is reaching out to needy people in this city and elsewhere. And not only that, but I love you. Your mother loves you. Your grandparents all love you. You are a beloved Harrison son. Now say it again. And this time the boy nearly shouted the words, My name is Danny and I am a Harrison. That's the spirit, his dad said. Anytime you feel a little fear today, remember who you are and remember who loves you. And so I ask you the same question that I began with. Who are you? Maybe you're here today and you're not sure what to believe about any of this and you haven't become a Christian, you're not following Jesus, but we invite you to consider that decision and we'd love to talk with you about that today. But if you are a follower of Jesus, then like this dad did with his son, I want to take some time to remind you who you are. You are a son or daughter of God Most High who loves you with an infinite, never-ending love. You were known from before you were even born. 
You were created in the image of God. His breath fills your lungs. His spirit lives in you. His son died for you. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are God's special possession. You are a beloved child of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, that is the truth. You have told us who we are. Sometimes we just need the reminder so we can believe it. There's so many things that we try and find our identity in in this world, Lord. Help us to just find that identity in you. Because you are all that matters. Father, we thank you. We thank you that even when we disobeyed, you didn't leave us. We thank you that even when we sinned, you came for us. You sent your son Jesus to take on flesh, to be one of us, so that he could pay our penalty in death. But we also thank you that he conquered death. That up from the grave he arose. I thank you that you love us with that never-ending, infinite love. I mean, I, I cannot wrap my mind around that. But I know it's true. Father, you love us. You call us beloved. Help us to live that out, even during the hard times. Even when we're scared, help us remember who we are in you. That's our prayer today, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Would you stand with us as we...